Well, please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5. We are in a series through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus has a large crowd that have gathered around him, and he is teaching them, giving them pictures of how a person who is right with God should live. We saw in chapter 5, verse 17 last week, that Jesus stated that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. By that meaning, that the Old Testament law points to the person of Jesus Christ. The prophets point to the person of Jesus Christ. And because the entire Old Testament points to Jesus, he has the authority to correct the religious leaders of his day's misunderstanding of the law. He has the authority to teach what is the true direction of the law. And in doing that, we see today one of six examples Jesus is going to give us where he shows what the religious leaders' understanding of the law is versus what he teaches the meaning of the law is. And in so doing, Jesus is going to show that he has the authority to teach what true righteousness is. Many of the day would have looked at the Old Testament law and say, I'm doing that. I'm, I'm right with God. And last week we saw Jesus make, in chapter 5, verse 20, an astounding statement. One that would have just caused people who were listening to him to just, their jaws to drop open. Because Jesus said this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And those who heard that comment would question How is that possible? Because the religious leaders are the most righteous people we know. And here Jesus is saying, I have to have a righteousness even greater than that if I can enter in order to enter the kingdom. How is that possible? And we noted last week, there's no such thing as a relative righteousness. There's no such thing as almost being right with God. And what Jesus is doing here is showing that the religious leaders had misunderstood the law. They were viewing it externally. They were looking at the Ten Commandments and saying, Well, I haven't killed anyone, therefore I'm right with God. I haven't sinned. And here Jesus is going to show us that sin is more than just an external act. Sin actually goes to the very core of a person's being. I'm going to read the verses out loud. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible. I'll start reading Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, 
shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering therefore before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Jesus, in this first of six illustrations where he uses a common introduction or formula. You have heard it say, but now I tell you. In the first of these six is going to show that sin is more than just external acts. Sin goes to the core of a person's being. This past week, I It was my turn to provide lunch for about 20 pastors. And so I asked my wife to help me. I said, let's just make a big stock pot of chili. So I went to the store and I picked up the fixings for chili. And as I came to the produce area, I came to the onion section. Now, the older I get the more little lists of pet peeves I have. And and one of the things that bothers me when we clean onions at our house is that that very outer layer of the onion tends to go airborne. I don't know why it is, but when we clean an onion, you'll find that 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 little out that very outermost shell of the onion it tends to waft across the kitchen somehow and and either that or our dog is grabbing it. I don't know what. But there'll be onion peel over there in the corner and there'll be some over here. And, and it just bothers me. And so it's probably not ethically good according to the laws of the produce man. But I'm one of the guys that that outer two shells of the onion that's just barely hanging on anyway, I usually leave those in the bin because... I don't want them floating around our house. And so if you look and say, oh, look at this. Some guy left that outer dry shell in here. It was me. <laughs> so I get the onions home and you start to peel off the outer layer. And that's kind of what God does with us. I don't know if you can remember back to when you first really became conscious of the concept of sin in your life. But I distinctly remember it. And what I considered to be sin were things that I did. Outward sin. I still remember to this day going into my brother's bedroom opening the top drawer of his dresser, taking out his billfold and removing a dollar bill from it. He had a job. He's not going to miss one. And I, and I, that 
I remember doing that my whole life. And several years ago, we were both adults. I said, hey, Greg, I got to tell you, when I was like in the fourth grade, I opened up your drawer and I took out a dollar bill. So here you go. And I, I paid him back with interest. <laughs> no, but we view sin as something outward, something that we do. But when we start following Jesus Christ, we put our trust in him. We become his true disciple, his follower. God starts doing a work in our hearts and he starts peeling away the layers of our life. And we start recognizing that sin goes deeper in us than just the things that we do. And just like we peel away an onion and the further we get down, it gets a little painful, right? I mean, it, you can actually get a little bit teary-eyed as those gases of the onion come up. It gets a little painful when we start to see that my sin is just not external. My sin goes all the way through. That it goes all the way to the core of my being. And Jesus wants those who are gathered on this hillside, as he's talking with them, he wants them to see that. That, that we can't say, oh, I'm, I'm right with God just because I can check off a list of things that I have not done. That, that our sin before God goes deeper into our souls, into our beings, than just things that we do or don't do. It goes to the core of our being. It goes to our very heart. And so to illustrate that, Jesus turns to the sixth commandment. Remember, this is a Jewish audience listening to him. They all would have been brought up from very little ages of knowing the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus quotes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Very familiar. And he says this. You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So here in these first two verses, Jesus is going to show his authority. He's going to show his authority by teaching people that have misunderstood the law. And he's going to teach them that when they view murder as just an act, they're disregarding the true root of murder, which is anger. And both the external act and the internal reality are sin. They're both unacceptable to God. They both render a person a sinner. So Jesus quotes Exodus 20.13. Everyone in the audience would say, yep, but I haven't done that. I'm good. But, verse 22 I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough 
to go into the fiery hell. So Jesus says, you all know the law, but you're misunderstanding it. I am saying to you this, and it's really interesting what Jesus did here. Because in the Greek language, oftentimes you don't actually have a pronoun like I. The pronoun will be understood from the verb. So in Greek, it might say, I am tired. But in, if you look at that sentence, it would just say, am tired. The form of the word am tells you that it's me. It's a first person. Once in a while, they use both. They use the pronoun and the verb. And that's what Jesus does here. He's almost like, I am telling you this. It's saying I twice. What he's doing is saying, I have the authority to tell you what the sixth commandment means because I am the one that the entire Old Testament points to. I am the Messiah. I am the one who has the authority to tell you what true righteousness is. And true righteousness is not just avoiding a list of external sin. True righteousness is recognizing, true righteousness recognizes this sin goes all the way to the core of who I am and who you are. So Jesus says, you think you're doing good because you haven't killed anybody. But I am telling you with the anger that's in your heart, you're just as guilty of murder as the person who actually took out a knife and took someone's life. Now that got people's attention. That would have stopped people in their tracks. Wow. And probably brought some conviction to some hearts. He actually uses two different Words here in verse 22 that are pretty close in understanding. One, he says, if you say to your brother, you good for nothing. The other word says, if you, whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty. Both of those words are, are close. Uh, one is actually probably a translation from, from Aramaic, uh, like a, uh, close to Greek, like the trade language. And here, Jesus is saying, you just have this, this disciple, this person that's following me next to you. When you get angry at them, your, your anger is, has just heated up inside of you and you blow up at that person. Man, you're guilty. It's interesting. That he repeats the word guilty three times in that verse. You shall be guilty, shall be guilty, shall be guilty. And he says guilty before the court. And then he says guilty before the Supreme Court. That's the Sanhedrin. 
That's that group that in Jesus' day would have been made up of the scribes, like the experts in the Old Testament law, the the Pharisees, some priests, the high priest, the sitting high priest, would kind of be the president or the overseer of the Sanhedrin. They had full authority. This was the highest court in Judea. They could, they had authority over civil and religious law. And they could pretty much do what they wanted as long as they were in line with Roman rule, except they could not carry out the death penalty. They had to have Roman approval for that. And in lifting this high court, Jesus accentuates the guilt But really, the court system for Jesus here is just a picture of the true guilt because ultimately, can a court judge what's inside of a person's heart? No. So he says in the very last phrase of verse 22 that our guilt ultimately isn't before a human court. It's before God's court. It's before a right God. And he says you should be guilty enough To go into the fiery hell. Now in the Greek language, the word that's translated hell here is a word in English that sounds kind of like Gehenna. And that's a very interesting word because it's actually a Hebrew word that they just took a Greek letter and lined it up with a Hebrew letter. It's called a transliteration. The Hebrew is a reference to a valley south of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. And if you said that in Hebrew, it would be the Greek equivalent to the word Gehenna. This Valley of Hinnom became the name that Jews used to refer to the place of eternal torment, hell. It's an Old Testament term. For example, you can turn to the book of Jeremiah in the seventh chapter, where God is confronting the southern tribes of Israel, Judah, through the prophet Jeremiah, and is confronting them about the depths of their sin, that those southern tribes were so sinful that they started sacrificing their own children to pagan gods. And they were doing it in this place that the Greeks refer to as Gehenna, this valley of Hinnom. Notice in verse 31 it says, They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, the valley of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. So this is a gross place, this Gehenna, this place, this valley of Hinnom. Human sacrifice took place there. Between the end of the writing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the writing of the New Testament was about 400 years. Scholars call it the intertestamental period, between the testaments, between the old and the new. And during that 400 years, there was a lot of writing going on about the scripture. And the Jewish rabbis wrote a lot about how to interpret scripture. And in all of those writings, they started referring to the eternal place of torment as Gehenna, as this valley of Hinnom, this place that was so gross that 
infants were uh, sacrificed there. There's writings during that period of time that tell us that this valley became the place where Jerusalem's refuse, their human excrement, was brought out to be burned. That still happens today in the world. When I was in India in 2000, there were guys who their whole job was to every day go to these public places where you use the restroom and to pull out baskets filled with human excrement and then they take it outside of town and they burn it. That's your job. How is work today, honey? Oh, it's kind of the same as every day. I just burned human excrement. That, that's got to be on pretty high on my list of bad jobs. Well, that's what this valley was used for. And there's writings that say that the fires would just keep burning all the time. And so they, the writers during that 400 years period just started referring to this place of eternal torment that we call hell as Gehenna. And that's what's the word behind this word hell here. Jesus' point is this. You religious leaders think you're right with God. Because externally you have not violated the law. But you are missing what I am telling you the law is all about. It's not just the externals of sin. Sin goes to the core of our being. Sin is not just an external, it's in the heart. And you may not have taken a knife out and stabbed somebody in the heart, but you are just as guilty because of your anger towards your brother. And that anger, that root of anger within you renders you just as guilty as if you'd taken the knife out and plunged it into another person and killed them. I mentioned to you that over Christmas break, someone slammed into my pickup in downtown St. Paul, Minnesota, drove off, left $5,000 damage. I got it fixed. It's all good. And a couple of weeks ago, I just got in my pickup back from the body shop. And it was like the day of or the next day. I can't remember which. I was just driving near church here. I was on Collins Road on the access road. And I'm on the access road, just had my pickup out of the shop. And I am looking, and there's a guy in a late model Cadillac who's on his cell phone. And he had swerved out of his lane, and he's coming in a pretty good click straight at me. If you're here this morning, I've finally come to the point where I've forgiven you. So uh, so this guy is coming straight at me. He's heads down. He's I don't know if he's checking the stock market, if he's texting, I answering email. I don't know what he's doing, but he's clear over in my lane, heading straight at me, decent rate of speed. I'm laying on the horn. And I feel like I'm on the horn for about three seconds. I know it wasn't that long, but it felt like a long time. He finally lifted up his head, and it felt like we were within about 20 yards of each other. It probably was a little further than that, but there wasn't a lot of time to spare here. And he swerved, and he jerked his car back over, and I was mad. I mean, I was mad. You probably don't realize that I could get as mad as I was, but I was mad. 
I didn't use any gestures to the guy. I don't believe I used any swear words, but I was angry. And if he happened to look at me when he was going by, he would have seen how angry I was. You can tell I was angry, can't you? I was mad. In fact, I was so mad that I briefly thought about turning around and following him and just telling him how mad I was, but I didn't, I didn't do that. But I was angry. And then I have to come back to my office and look at a passage like Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, because I knew I blew it. I... You know, maybe you could have been in that situation and not feel like you sinned against God, but I was, I did. I know, I know my own heart. I know that what the anger that I was feeling was not righteous anger. It wasn't the same anger that Jesus felt when he was at the temple and saw the money changers and he said, you've turned this house of prayer into a house of dens and robbers. That wasn't that kind of an anger. I was just ticked off at this guy because he just about creamed my pickup that I just got back out of the shop. And I was mad. And if he could have read my lips, he would have seen I was calling him dummy just right out of this passage. And it wasn't biblical. I was angry. And you know what? I was guilty. Because sin isn't just external sin comes from the very core of our being. And this guy violated my space. And he caused me angst. He ruined the serenity of my moment. And I was mad. And Jesus here is saying, you know what? Sin against God isn't just externals comes from within. You know, James has an interesting point in James chapter 2. And I often turn to this passage when I'm talking about pe- talking with people about really what's sin all about. And James says this in chapter 2, starting to read in verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. And I can't imagine that there would have been one person sitting there listening to Jesus teach who wouldn't have said, that's me. Probably were some that blocked out what he was saying. But Jesus here is showing his authority over the law by telling us what the law truly points to, and it points to him and to his teaching. And he is saying, it's not just the externals that render us guilty before God, but it's our attitudes. It's the condition of our heart. It's what we think about people, not just what we say about people. It's that anger that we internalize Toward people. So Jesus is going to take that opening statement about the nature of sin and he's going to even flesh it out further for us in verses 23 through 26 by giving us two examples of how serious 
anger is. If we'd say, okay, is murder serious? Every one of us in it, yeah, it's serious. Murder is serious. Is anger serious? Well, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, I suppose it's serious. Jesus says it's very serious. Because it is sin at the very core of our being. So he gives us two examples to show us how serious anger is. And he's going to use two illustrations. One, an illustration from worship. Like two disciples, both worshipers. And then he's going to use an example of two adversaries who are caught up in a lawsuit. The first example is in verses 23 and 24 with two disciples. One disciple has gone to the temple to bring his offering. Could have been a grain offering or maybe some oil that would be poured out onto the altar signifying that uh, just a, a free will offering to celebrate who God is. And he brings his offering, and as he's bringing it to the altar in the outer, out of the courts of the temple, he remembers, oh man, I think my buddy, he may be mad at me. And Jesus says, leave your offering, go to your, go to your brother, and try to make reconciliation, try to reconcile with him before you carry on in worship. Why is this so important? Because the person who recognizes the depths of their own sin and their own heart and know how dangerous anger is that left unchecked within our own lives, if I really love my brother, I'm going to be concerned about anger in his or her life too. And so I not only have to be concerned about my own anger, if I can do anything to reconcile this with this brother or sister, if I really care about them, if I really love them as a brother or sister, I need to be reconciled to them. And Jesus here is saying that's more than an act of worship. That's more important than an act of worship because someone else's heart is at stake. The next illustration he gives is in verses 25 and 26. This is between two adversaries. Two people who have gone to court. And in both of these examples, the people that Jesus addresses are not the ones who are angry. It's the other person. And so Jesus here uses the illustration of the adversary. In the same way, he says, if someone feels like you have wronged them and they're taking you to court, try to settle before it gets to court. Why is that important? Because anger is dangerous. And if it's within our means, we should try to bring resolution so that anger doesn't take root in the other person's heart. Now there's an important passage that we need to keep in mind when we, when we think about this. And that's from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 18. In Romans chapter 12 verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That means I cannot remove someone else's anger. I can't control someone else's heart. I can't. You can't. 
All that we can do is try to take a step toward reconciliation with Him. If the Spirit of God brings to our heart, to our consciousness, that I have offended someone else, I can't remove their anger. But I can go to them and take a step toward reconciliation with them and try to reconcile. That's all that I can do. That's all that you can do. Here, Jesus is highlighting how serious anger is because it's actually at the very core of the person's being. And it's sin. To hang on to that anger and let it go deep. Several years ago, I was on a fishing trip up in Minnesota. And prior to going on the trip, I'd had just some minor little twangs of tooth pain. Just once in a while. I just think, hey, I wonder if I just felt some tooth pain. I probably need to get it checked out. But then it went away and about three weeks goes by. And hey, I just drank some coffee and I, did I feel pain? And then, ah, probably not. Oh, next time I go to the dentist, I'll get it checked out. And a few weeks go by and I'm on my fishing trip. And all of a sudden, I am in pain. I am hurting. I'm in such pain. I can't sleep at night. And I'm taking Advil and Tylenol back and back to back. And I'm popping those. And I've got compresses on my jaw. And I'm miserable at night. And I'm miserable during the day. All I can do is hope to get home and head to my endodontist. Why? Because the decay... Was not just at the surface, it was all the way in the root. And I just kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, not really recognizing what it really was. And so Jesus here, he's got people in front of him who believe that everything's okay, they're right with God because they haven't done this. And they haven't done this. And they did do this good thing, but I'm a good person. I've never murdered anybody. Next week we'll see. I've never committed adultery, so I'm right with God. And Jesus says, well, the law says this. But I say to you that that sin goes deeper than just externals. It goes all the way to the heart. All the way to the core of our being. And we cannot stand before a right God with that sin. And we're going to see later in the book of Matthew that that's why Jesus came. Because he knows our plight. And he knows there's no such thing as relative righteousness. And our righteousness cannot stand before a holy God. So that's why he came and died. That's why he paid the price for our sin and rose again. If you're here today and you feel like in your heart you are still at a point in your life where you are trying to be a good enough person to be right with God and you don't know if you are or aren't, I would encourage you today that none of us are. 
And we only have one option, and that is to put our dependence off of ourselves onto the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was completely right, and he paid for your sin and my sin in his death. If you've never experienced that, we have some material we'd like to give to you. It's back in our prayer room. One of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church will be back there. And I encourage you, just after the service, to stop and say, hey, can I have some of that material that talks about how a person can be right with God? Or maybe you have a friend that you want to give some of that material to. Just stop back in the prayer room today. Father, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount and for Jesus' teaching that shows us that sin is just not an external act but internal, all the way to the core of our being. And we thank you that you loved us so much that you did not leave us alienated from you in our sin, but you sent your one and only Son who took our sin upon himself and paid for it with his own life. And we can come to you knowing that we're right with you through faith in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.